The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, it's Tuesday morning, everybody. Welcome to Scorebox with Karen Cho, myself, Steve Sedgwick, and these are your headlines. Japan's Nikkei outperforming other Asian indices to close higher. Uh, but the yen slips as the Bank of Japan maintains its ultra-loose monetary policy and gives no clues as to when it will look to end its negative rate strategy. The Dow and the Nasdaq close in the green, just about, as you can see on the Dow's case, uh, it for the eighth straight session. This amid more dovish predictions for the Fed's rate path in 2024. Whilst the Chicago Fed president Austin Goolsby tells CNBC he doesn't understand Wall Street's reaction. It's far be it from me to get into the head of, of what the market is. I, I think we, we'd be best to remember the old Volcker lesson that our job is to act and their job is to react. The U.S. launches an international maritime operation in a bid to protect shipping lanes in the Red Sea as BP becomes the latest company to announce it will avoid the region. Iran is raising tensions by continuing to support terrorist groups and militias. Attacks by these Iranian proxies threaten the region's citizens and risk a broader conflict. Activist investor Sevian reveals a 1.2 billion euro stake in UBS, calling the Swiss bank the biggest opportunity in global financials after its rescue of Credit Suisse in March. And Apple races to find a fix for its $17 billion watches business amid an IP dispute with a medtech firm that's halting U.S. sales just days before Christmas. Uh, good morning, Karen. How are you? Good morning. Well, thank you. A good, stunningly busy time as well. I'll go straight into flashes from Japan's Governor uh, Ueda as well. All kinds of flashes. I'll leave you to do most of the work on this one and I'll get JP Ong, our, our colleague in Singapore, to go through some of it as well. But perhaps the most surprising flash there, well, it'll be a surprise to many of you, is that generally speaking, policy change could involve element of surprise. So says the gentleman speaking on your screen uh, to my camera left at the moment as well. Uh, I don't think there'll be too much surprise when you've got a debt to GDP estimated for 2024 at 264%. 264%. I don't think they're going to be rocking the boat too much with these markets as well. Although, to be fair, bearing in mind that the BOJ has bought most of the uh, bonds out there and bought most of the ETFs on equities, uh, maybe they control those surprises themselves. Anyway, cannot deny some negative effects of uh, negative interest rate policy on financial institutions' profitability. Yeah, you can't do much with the NIMS on that one, can you, as well? Uh, it should be possible for the market to forecast our policy shift, at least to some extent. Well, that just goes in the face of the surprise comment that I started with as well. Uh, they want to see, and I think this is absolutely pivotal, and it's something that Karen and myself have spoken about many, many times. We want to see over at the BOJ if next spring's wage growth is strong enough to support consumption. Uh, and every expert I've spoken to, and Karen's spoken to as well, have put us... In view of that, look at the wage negotiations, look at whether we're going to get 4% plus in a lot of these negotiations as well. 
If we do, then that could be the catalyst for tighter monetary policy as well. One more, uh, and I'll just say that, and this is exactly the point I was just trying to make, uh, Ueda says we want to gauge the result of spring wage negotiations. Now, there's a high chance that I've taken everything away from JP Ong, but hopefully he's got some more to say, because the Bank of Japan left its policy unchanged, as expected, making it the only central bank on the planet. Is that right? On the planet? Well, there's a statement. Uh, with rates still in negative territory. I'm sure JP can find something else to say. Good morning, sir. Good morning, you guys. This is Stephen. Yes, this is the decision that a lot of people were, were hoping for, actually, in uh, uh, out here in Asia. And again, kind of might remind you somewhat of that comedy with William Shakespeare, Much Ado About Nothing, because this is one of the most important uh, central bank decisions that global markets watch out for, for a central bank that more often than actually does nothing. They leave things unchanged, much like how the Bank of Japan did today. They left rates at negative 0.1%, as you mentioned, one of the last ba- central banks in the world to maintain a negative policy rate. They kept the upper end of the 10-year JGB limit, at least flexible, at 1% as a reference point, and also maintained the yield curve controls mostly the same, and also, once again, and hearken the same concerns they have with regards to inflation and economic growth in Japan. You mentioned um, BOJ Governor Kasuo Ueda while holding that press conference. And one thing he did note that was very interesting was he said that Japan's consumption has shown some weakness but continues to recover overall, which is why there might be a bit of a hesitancy to lift themselves out of this ultra-loose monetary policy because they're still seeing signs that the growth and the recovery in Japan might be a little bit uneven, actually. Um, and again, this is something that harkens back to some of the things that they've also mentioned. They, they see that prices will continue to recover moderately, but they have to be carefully watch financial and forex moves to make sure that not excessive volatility doesn't threaten and add to more complications with regards to the economy out in Japan. He did say that Japan's economy is gradually picking up, but also, uh, and also said that on the upside, rising soft landing expectations for the U.S. economy might be positive also for the world's third largest economy, that is Japan. Now, you might not be surprised about how this actually impacted markets out in Japan today. We saw the 10-year yield actually come down a little bit alongside many others on the JGB yield curve, again, because of the promise that ultra-loose monetary policy might be here to stay for a little bit longer. We'll probably have to wait until 2024 before this is lifted. The Japanese yen also weakening on this, uh, on this, on on the back of this. Also, much, uh, uh, much expected. It's not a big of a sh- bit of a shock to see that it did the, made that move. But also, this l- helped lend some support to the broader Nikkei 225 and the topics, which actually closed out the day with pretty solid gains. In fact, no surprises once again that the J- topics real estate index, property stocks, also perhaps taking a little bit of confidence from this softer uh, promise, at least of ultra loose monetary policy. I do want to point out though that the banks, the topics bank index was one of the major laggards actually out in Tokyo today. Once again, the banks of Japan have been clamoring for the lifting out of ultra-loose monetary policy, out of negative rate land. But it seems that if it stays there for a bit longer, it might mean that net interest margins for some of these lenders in Japan might be constrained, which means that their outlook might continue to be a bit cloudy. And that's pretty much how Japanese markets reacted today. But the big question is, heading into 2024, when might they actually be confident enough to lift themselves out of a negative rate territory, to lift the controls and go from ultra-loose to maybe not so loose monetary policy? Again, a lot of this will depend on inflation, which has been above 2% since April of 2022. But they do think it's not yet that sticky. But what, the, what, what, what might be sticky enough for the Bank of Japan will be up to Kazuo Ueda and some of the other people at the Bank of Japan.
Gentlemen, ladies, back to you. And JP, thank you very much for running us through the latest developments there from the Bank of Japan. But let's refocus in on the central bank state side at the Federal Reserve because pushback still continuing from some of those Fed speakers. It's not doing much for markets, though. And don't forget that pivot we saw last week, all important for a lot of investors. We have had Loretta Mester over at the, the Cleveland um, Fed talking about uh, some pushback on the timing. Also, Austin Goolsby uh, effectively talking about uh, the fact that it's not going to be a, a swift uh, U.S. rate-cutting um, spree that we see next year, that it could be a lot slower than that. So the market's not doing much with that information. You can see it was still a push to the upside mostly. We're calling it positive for the Dow, but you can see it was really a flat finish. The S&P gaining almost half of a percent and the Nasdaq stronger six-tenths of a percent. That again reflecting communication services being the sector to buy. A bit more of a normal type of rally now. It looked like a bit of a laggards rally in recent sessions, but yesterday Fang stocks back out in front, communication services names lifting the likes of the Nasdaq. Let's take a look elsewhere, Treasuries, and what we're seeing across the board, 3.92. We haven't moved very far, despite some of that language from Fed speakers. We're still shy of the 4% mark on the 10-year, and at the short end, we're off the 4.5% the mark. We're at 4.44 morning session. And to the dollar, and of course, the uh, dollar has moved uh, a fair distance, but somewhat helping out has been that other central banks are looking at very similar moves now to the Fed into 2024. So we're 126.62 morning session on Sterling. It is trying to hold on to current territory up about a tenth of a percent in uh, the intraday session and we're above 109 and a quarter on euro dollar dollar yen rates given how market moving it has been out of japan today you can see a dollar has the upper hand by 143.90 so some dollar strength displayed there dollar femur versus the chinese currency too oil has been very much on the radar thanks to the geopolitics and the latest has been that bp has joined other large shipping firms that are saying they're avoiding the Red Sea transit area for now. This because of some attacks by the Houthis and others in the region. So the market watching the implications for the oil markets was 72.37 on WTI. Slight drift morning session, although Brent has uh, held on to gains. And you can see we're just shy of $78 at this stage. To the European boards, let's take stock of where we are because yesterday we saw an, a negative session. We're first negative session out of three. So some of the momentum coming out of those European boards. And uh, what we've got morning sessions, we gear up for trade. Not much on the FTSE. Keep in mind, this is a market that has barely done much this year. It's up just 2% so far for the year versus double-digit gains elsewhere. Stocks out of France seeking another tenth of a percent along with the German market. And in the realm, uh, looking uh, nicely perched before the session, is the FTSE nib out of Italy. So the, the queue's mostly positive, the exception out of the UK stock market. Steve. Karen, I'll just have a fantastic chat with our next guest. So uh, we shall move on. The San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly says holding interest rates steady could risk over-tightening. Oh, more mixed messages. With inflation on a downward path, Daly told the Wall Street Journal the Fed must make sure it doesn't give price stability uh, by taking away jobs. Uh, must It doesn't give price stability by taking away jobs. Okay, right. Strange. Uh, meanwhile, the Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsby told this channel there could be a scenario where growth and inflation concerns are evenly balanced. I believe that if we get improvement on inflation, that, we've have, that we're clearly moving to target. And we're still not there yet. We, we still need to see these markers. But if we get inflation back into the range of our dual mandate goals, then we've got more symmetric concerns, let's call it, about both sides of, of the dual mandate.
I'm delighted to say Fraser Thorne has joined us around the desk. I think it's his first time around the desk as well. CEO of Edison Group. Nice to see you, Fraser. Nice to see you. Um, look, many things we can ask about at the moment. And you're no economist, I appreciate that. You're, you're more looking at what's going on in the markets as well. I mean, but what, what do you make of what we've seen from the central banks in the last week, say? Ueda steadfast, refusing to move just yet, despite inflation being above target since April 2022. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Fed having made, to our mind and to everyone else's, I don't know yourself, but just the most enormous pivot I've seen in terms of language from any central bank in the last 20 years. Just, just give us your overview. Well, I think we're in a very difficult um, situation whereby you've got the central banks that have a lot of debt to manage and they're trying to balance this with, with how you're going to try and get growth in the economy. And you can see this happening in Japan at the minute, whereby uh, clearly they need to look at some other tactics as to how they're going to try and drive uh, growth in the economy because interest rates where they are in Japan are just... Uh, not, not having the impact and, and, and making things uh, go in the right direction. Mm. In terms of the Federal Reserve, um, the market reaction was all of those words, ebullient, exuberant, overexcited, some say irrationally excited, given the fact that the Fed is not necessarily talking about cuts yet. But as Karen was pointing out yesterday, some of the, the big banks out there are already talking about cuts in March, maybe a bit premature. Mm. Has the Fed got its messaging wrong? I think uh, the Fed is very good at being preemptive. I think right. it's trying to get the markets to, 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 to find their own way forwards. Uh, and I think that realistically, we've seen such a sharp rise in interest rates that, that for many in the operational world, it's been very difficult to manage that. You've seen a lot of companies that have borrowed an awful lot of money in the last 10, 15 years and suddenly their profits are just being absorbed in uh, servicing the debt. So, sorry, they, they, they're suffering because they don't look at the lessons of history. And they didn't, they didn't realise the fact that in your, our lifetime, these rates are abnormally low and are not what are going to be normal. I, I think that is something that comes from a, someone who's got a bit more experience and, and, a, and a wiser outlook. And yes, definitely, these things are cyclical. It just so happens that we've been through an incredibly long uh, cycle of low interest rates, um, but but you know normal normal rates. These these levels uh, yeah. historically um, nothing special. Okay, yeah. yeah. That said, there is a market bet now on some of the European bonds into next year because of fading momentum. And if we think about what we had in 2023, European bond yields got dragged along with everything else, so with the US Treasury market. As we look into next year, do you think it will be a story of diversification where you will see fading momentum, fading growth in some parts of the world deliver a greater bond performance than others? I think you're certainly going to see... Uh, a greater dislocation of um, performance and that you've got a lumber of economies and, and you know, Europe is a, is, is a more mature economy as a landmass and I think it is going to have to find new ways to, um, to provide growth. How this is going to impact the, uh, the bond market um, is, is going to follow what rates do. So as you look into next year, how much volatility are you expecting? Because there is a view it could be bumpy as central banks try and land after very strong you know, interest rate moves to the upside, they're going to try and achieve a soft landing. Do you think we are setting up for a volatile 2024? I don't think that the uh, macroeconomic environment is going to be the major driver of volatility. I think you're looking at geopolitical issues. I think you're looking at wider uh, uh, climate impact is still very much 
sitting there as a longer term issue. But I think in 2024, we've got over half the global population that is going to vote. So I think we've got elections in 70 countries in, in the next 12 months. Anything can happen. And I think that that is going to have a, have a greater impact on uh, how the markets are going to behave. Does that mean the volatility will be expressed through the bond market then? Because in other times when we've seen sovereign issues, it's been the bond markets that have responded first. So is that where we look for some jumpiness in 2024? I think you're probably going to see uh, investors uh, follow the, the course of action where they're going to go to defensive markets. I think you're going to see that that's going to be supportive for, for treasuries. Um, Fraser, risk premium is really low. Um, volatility is stunningly low. You, you like I, would have uh, looked at the VIX and gone, really? You can't trade that. You can't own 12.5% and make some money out of it, given these markets as well. But people are not taking out their insurance policy because it takes a couple of beeps uh, off their overall performance. And they can't afford to do that compared with uh, benchmark and peers at the moment as well. So I, I think we're all agreed that there's going to be some volatility somewhere. You're saying geopolitics. Let's say, for sake of argument, let's say Karen says bond market. For sake of argument, I say... Uh, uh, elsewhere in corporate debt, I don't know, high yield or something, creating a, a ripple effect. Why, why isn't anyone, everyone seems right, and, and by your own admission, by Alistair George, one of your analysts there, um, we're neutral on global equities because we just think, especially in the US, valuations are, are top of their recent price to book, for instance. So no one's worried, apart from the people who are chattering around the edges, not the people who are actually participating. Why? I, I think that's a very, very good question. I think one of the issues is that a lot of investors have now, uh, if we're talking to the capital markets, they've got themselves sucked into this um, uh, a strategy of following benchmarks. So it becomes incredibly difficult from an institutional investment perspective to actually go out there and be brave. So you're just, you, you're, being, you're being sort of like dragged along as to where the Hang benchmark on, is. This is what we pay these people I, for. I absolutely I, I, I agree. Can be, I can follow the herd and have a mean curve, top of the bell curve distribution of my portfolio. Karen, can, we can all say, oh, that's what everyone's got. I'll mimic that in myself. And it costs me nothing. Exactly. Why am I paying all these geniuses I, I, out there who are having their big fat bonuses, not as fat as previous years? Why am I paying them money to do exactly the same as I can replicate at home? I. I, I well, many people aren't. Many people are, are moving into the track of funds. You can see the success of uh, the likes of Vanguard. Um, but what happens is that they distort the underlying drivers of the capital markets, whereby you're not actually getting enough activity that's bringing in um, real price setting. Uh, so I think that, that, that um, we, will see, uh, we will see governments actually start to look at this. You've already seen in the UK that the government is looking at how they can address the decline of the UK capital markets. Um, they're looking at a number of policies as to how you can, how you can drive uh, more activity into the UK, which is, which is desperately needed. Yeah. Fraser, lovely to see you. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Nice and early. Uh, have a lovely Christmas. Thank you very much. Happy uh, Christmas to all. Fraser Thorne, who is the CEO of Edison Group. Um, you mentioned geopolitics. Karen's looking at There's that very issue. plenty happening today. The US Defence Secretary has been inviting uh, nations, dozens of nations, to address the Houthi attacks and Red, Red Sea shipping lanes. He's been speaking at a defence ministerial and effectively talking about a new military operation to secure commerce in the waterway. And he's gone on to say 
In this virtual ministerial on the Red Sea shipping, he's condemned the Houthi attacks on commercial vessels, said Houthi attacks on the Red Sea shipping must stop and called on countries to publicly condemn Houthi actions. And he's gone to tell countries participating in this ministerial that there are many ways to contribute to new operations to secure the Red Sea. Uh, so uh, those comments, as it is, of course, having consequences on uh, what we are seeing in the region. Uh, we've seen the oil price, of course, be front and centre for a lot of investors at this point to, to judge uh, what the impact is, and especially after BP was the latest to uh, join the group of shipping companies that are pausing routes through there. But Mass saying it remains deeply concerned about the situation in the southern Red Sea and Gulf of Aden that case-by-case assessment will take place to determine whether adjustments need to be made. And out of the safety reasons, all vessels previously paused and due to sail through the region will now be rerouted around Africa. They will continue to their voyages on diverted routes as soon as operationally feasible and impacted customers will be informed. Adjustments including diversions via scope of Good Hope and further contingency measures. As of yesterday, uh, the, 10th, uh, the 18th of December, Maersk had approximately 20 vessels that had paused transit. So this is telling us about the volume and uh, out of which half were waiting east of the Gulf of Aden. Do you notice something um, about the price action? You, you will notice it. But have a look at the, the price of Brent again. Thanks, Will. Sorry, I, I know you just got rid of it. One. Look at that. 78 bucks. Yeah. I mean, and WTI, 72.3. We just had the most amazing analyst on the show yesterday, someone I, I value as a friend and as a brilliant analyst, uh, yesterday, Amrita Sen, saying we're undervaluing risk premium. And, and, and then, as if by magic, kind of all this starts kicking off another again. Uh, and then, so there's a great opportunity for oil to rally four bucks, five bucks, six bucks. It, it's very often done that when you and I have been looking on, yes, on, on these massive events. It, on the Red Sea looking not yeah. closed, but problematic for some of the most important sea routes and energy routes on the planet. And we're unchanged in the current session. And yesterday we were up 1.8% on Brent. Now that is a good, I'm glad, it was a measured reaction. It went up, it appreciated the risk, but there's nothing excitable about the oil price. So that says to me one of two things. One, nobody's playing. They've closed their books for Christmas, which I don't believe for one minute. Or two, there are still so many supply concerns and demand concerns that actually having a bit of rerouted oil around the, the base of Africa and what have you, uh, it's not problematic for the customers. I know that some of the gas markets and the LNG markets popped on this one as well, but by and large, it's been a very sensible, sober reaction. Nothing excitable about the well, upside. Let's just talk about the journey we've had in recent years. We've had wars playing out in various different parts of the world. I mean, the Russia-Ukraine situation was incredibly difficult but this for is markets the Middle East. That's with different. sanctions imposed. And now, of course, uh, the events that played out around Israel and whether that could broaden out into a wider conflict. I think you put those events into perspective and everything we've seen in recent years. This doesn't touch the sides necessarily for a lot of traders because there'll be much bigger events to deal with. And even, you know, you think about OPEC plus meetings that have had high significance over recent years as well. I think the markets are putting into perspective because they've seen a lot. There's been a lot in this playbook in, in recent times. And a lot of those situations you just mentioned, sorry, Will, a lot of these situations you were just mentioning are ongoing, absolutely spot on, whether it be Russia, whether it be concern about Israel, Hamas, Hezbollah, etc., etc. Plus this, plus, see, we're adding, we're not just saying it's a sequential order. We haven't just had one bus come along and then it's gone away and now it's the next bus. Yes. All those buses are queued up here together. It's the same problem. And yet it's still leading us to a sub $80 global benchmark. I, I personally find that quite extraordinary. 
Does anyone think growth in 2024 is going to be as strong as growth in 2023 or growth in 2022? I think the reality is most people think growth is going to be lower. And if that is the situation, then where does the oil price settle because of the demand story? Well, as Emery was saying, there's a, the most enormous historical destocking going on, something that a lot of the analysts have been pointing out all year as well. So we don't have a lot of resilience, all about resilience to if there are shocks, because we don't have the global supply, we don't have the, the stocks there as well. And the SPR never really got filled up again, did it? We weren't, weren't below 70 for long enough. Anyway, fascinating stuff. Though. We're going to be having a conversation later on the show with Jorgen Lian, who is a senior equity analyst for shipping at DNB Markets. That interview is coming up at 8.45 CET. Coming up on the show, traders uh, rethinking their treasury bets as more Fed officials give mixed signals on hopes for a pivot. Plus, still yourselves, we'll talk you through more Monday merger madness uh, as one US lawmaker hits out at Nippon Steel's plans to buy what was once the world's largest company. And stick around because we'll hear from the ECB supervisory board chair, Andrea Andrea. That's 11.30 Central European time on a first on CNBC conversation. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. about four or five really big stories for you. Let's whiz through them now. Activist investor Sevian Financial has taken a 1.2 billion euro position in UBS, representing a 1.3% stake in the Swiss lender. Sevian's co-founder told the Financial Times he believes the bank can double its valuation in the next three to five years, saying UBS is valued as an average European bank, not a top global wealth manager. Elsewhere, Apple is set to pause US sales of two of its latest watches from Thursday. That's just four days before Christmas. The decision stems from two orders issued by the US International Trade Commission, ITC, in October, which would restrict Apple's ability to sell products that use the blood oxygen feature after an intellectual property disagreement between Apple and medical company Massimo. Uh, engineers are working on software fixes and other workarounds. Shares of Apple closed lower whilst Massimo posted gains. Uh, more on that story on CNBC.com. Karen. Alphabet will pay $700 million and change its Google Play app store policies to settle an antitrust case. It was brought by the U.S. Department of Justice and a group of 38 state attorneys general who accused Google of overcharging consumers through illegal restrictions on app distribution and unnecessary fees for in-app transactions. As part of the settlement, the company said it will make it easier for users to download apps directly from developers. The EU is investigating social media platform X over a suspected failure to tackle disinformation and information manipulation. It's the first formal probe launched under the bloc's Digital Services Act. X said it is cooperating with the process, which it said must be free of political influence and in line with the law. The founder of electric truck maker Nicola has been sentenced to four years in prison for defrauding investors. A judge compared Trevor Milton to jailed Theranos boss Elizabeth Holmes, saying he used his, quote, considerable social media talents to mislead investors on its startup technologies in a bid to boost the company's share price. You can read more about the lengths that Nicola went to in an effort to trick investors 
on CNBC.com, including a fake video of one of its truck models driving without a working engine. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.